Today's scripture uh, comes from the book of 1 Samuel. We're going to start in chapter 8, verses 1 through 9. And we're also going to do a reading from chapter 8, verse 19, all the way to chapter 9, um, to verse 2. So that sounds super confusing. So we're just going to start with 1 Samuel, chapter 8, verses 1 through 9. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. 1 Samuel eight nineteen through 22. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, no, but there shall be a king over us, that we may also be like all the other nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey their voice and make them a king. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, Go, every man to his city. 1 Samuel chapter 9, 1-2 There was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, the son of Zeror, son of Becherath, son of Aphiah, of Benjaminite, a man of wealth. And he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, church. What a beautiful family. You know, I got to tell you, they're, they're still fairly new, but they have been a blessing uh, from day one. If you don't know them, please uh, get to know them soon. If you don't know me, if you're new... My name is Matt Ortiz. I'm one of the pastors here, and we just finished up um, a season between series. That means we're starting a new series uh, today, a brief one, an Advent series, uh, simply called Advent of the King. Before I get started, I want to remind you of something. It is easy to have expectations for a worship service that are just misguided and off point. It's easy for our expectations in our world to show up to a worship service expecting uh, maybe primarily to be entertained or primarily to be inspired or, or primarily made to laugh or primarily made to cry or, or, or whatever it is. Um, my job, our job this morning, what we're called to do is to fix our eyes on Jesus, on who he is, and what he's done, and to glorify him. 
And if you're here for any other reason, you're going to be disappointed. But if you're looking to see Jesus and who he is and what he has done, there's nothing boring about that. I could be the most boring speaker in the world and be monotone and just dry personality, but if I'm preaching the gospel and you're looking for it, it will stir your affection for God and for your church and for God's mission. And you won't fall asleep. You won't be bored. You won't debate whether or not I'll come back next week if your eyes are fixed on Jesus. And that's my job this morning. Me preaching is not just communicating uh, the message. It is an act of worship. Me preaching is an act of worship. You listening to the sermon, it's not just you listening to the message. It's Listening is an act of, of worship. It is devoting your attention uh, to who Jesus is and what he has done. And I think Advent helps us with that expectation. A, a looking for the promised king the one who will reign and rule over us for our benefit, for our joy, for our blessing. Advent does that. And so I'm thankful for this time. So again, like I said, this series is called Advent of the King. You know, there are countless people from generation to generation and around the world who are fascinated with this concept of royalty, right? Kids still love stories about princes and, uh, princes and princesses and kings and, and, and queens. Uh, basketball fans refer to LeBron James as King James. Billions of people from around the world watch the wedding of Harry and Meghan. And that's just, I don't even scratch the surface there. We're intrigued by royal power and status, but at the same time, in our Western culture, we are suspicious of people with power and status, aren't we? I mean, it's cool for them. It's cool if I had it. But if I don't, you keep it to yourself. Don't, don't, don't reign over me. I want my life. If you're royalty, that's cool. Keep it to yourself. Now, these Old Testament books of First and Second Samuel record the history of Israel's rulers, their, their judges, they were called. Their kings, uh, stories about their struggles. But these are also stories about power and tears and deep longing. This, these stories, when we read them, they leave us wanting. They leave us longing for a true and righteous king. This Advent, we'll be looking at King Saul, which is Israel's, God's people, uh, the, the first king of God's people, and then King David, and finally, the arrival of the cosmic king, Jesus. Now, I, I want to make this narrative as, as important as it should be for us. I mean, I, I think it'll help if we point out two very serious problems that totally mess up our lives and the lives of those around us and problems that, that make lasting peace elusive, and fill our lives with uncertainty. We'll look at those two problems, and then we'll see what God has so graciously provided for us, for our joy, and for our blessing, and for our good. And the first problem of the two that we'll mention is this. We are confused about freedom. 
We are totally confused about freedom. We all long for it. In fact, we all demand it, like the people in the, in the, um, the uh, first Samuel chapter 8. We're confused about the freedom that we really need. Verse 1, when Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The names of his firstborn son was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and they perverted justice. And then all the other elders gathered together and, and came to Samuel at Ramah and, and said to him, Behold, you are old and, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now, appoint for us a king to judge us like all the other nations. Now, in this passage, we've just been introduced to our, our characters, and the first character is Samuel, which is Israel's last judge, final judge. After the exodus, after the 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, after the conquest of the promised land, there was 400 years of Israel's history with them being led by judges, which is just another, another word for a ruler, a type of ruler. And this is the transition chapter from judgeship to kingship, and Samuel is the final judge. He has led his people into a season of peace between Israel and the lasting, uh, the relentless Philistines. Then there is two sons, Joel and Abijah or Abijah. Samuel took the liberty of establishing them as judges to take over when he steps out. But if you read through the book of Judges, leadership as a judge was never an inherited position. 400 years of judges and not one judge has said to his son, you are going to rule the people after I leave. That never happened. And Samuel's sons didn't share their father's good character. They were unethical young men whose leadership and character were, uh, were full of corruption and the abuse of power. And then there are the elders. They approached Samuel out of a shared concern, understandable concern that Samuel was aging and his sons who were going to take over were corrupt and it would have made sense for them to say, hey, Samuel, we don't want your corrupt sons leading us. We need a new judge that is righteous. They don't say that. That would have made sense, but they don't say that. Instead, they said, you give us our first king. We need a king. And as this story unfolds, we see that the people's request for a king had less to do with avoiding corruption than it did establishing a, a different identity in order to get the freedom that they think that they want. So we have a lot to learn from them here. This story is not simply a story about judges and kings. It is about the destructive confusion that we have about the freedom we think that we need and want. A pastor and author, uh, Timothy Keller, says this, Today, as a culture, we believe that freedom is the highest good that becoming free is the only heroic story we have left, and that giving individuals freedom is the main role of any institution and of society itself. It is, we could say, the baseline cultural narrative of our Western culture. 
It has always been important, but now it is ultimately important. It is the one truth that relativizes all other doctrines and beliefs. Now, we all have, I think, a deep-down belief that life is best lived when we are most free. And we have different definitions about best life and freedom. And there's a lot of confusion about that. In Southern California context, to be a rational and thinking person means that I should have the right to autonomously make decisions for myself. And if there is an outside, any outside authority that is infringing on what I want to do or who I want to be, then I will resist that authority. What right do you have to violate my right to do and be whatever I want? Right? And so... What that leads to is, if believing in a God that has created me means, if believing in a God that has created me means that he has the right to guide, he has the right to counsel, to advise, he has the right to dictate, to contradict, to put his will into my life, I don't think I want that God. I don't think I want to believe in that God. I want to be free. So what we end up doing is we end up pushing God out of the storyline, consciously or subconsciously. God no longer exists to us. We don't want anyone, not even God, to tell us what to do. Does that sound familiar at all? Verse 6, but the thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, obey the voice of the people and all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you. They have rejected me from being king over them. Do you see this is primarily a story? This is not primarily a story about transition from judgment to judge, excuse me, from judgeship to kingship. It is focused on Samuel, not focused on Samuel or his corrupt sons. Let me be clear. This is a story about Israel's preference about who should be in charge. It's a story about Israel's preference about who should be in charge. It is a story about the human heart and freedom. And if we are confused, and we are often, about what freedom is and where it comes from, we will never have freedom. We never will. This is our first problem. We can't be free if we don't know who we are. And that brings us to our second point. We're totally confused about who we are. What is, now here's, here's the deal with identity. You have to ask yourself some questions. Questions like, what is true about you in every relationship, in every set of circumstances? What is true uh, about you no matter who is around you? What is true about you no matter what influences you, the money that you make, no matter the community you're a part of or the church you're a part of, what job you have or what you're going to school for, what school you go to? What's true about you no matter where you go or what happens to you? That is your identity. That is your identity. So my question is, who are you? Where are you looking for your identity? This is critical because if you pin your identity to what you do and then something wrecks it, you won't even know who you are anymore. 
and your life falls apart. So who are you? What is true about you no matter what the circumstances or relationships you have? Now, of all the other nations of the world, Israel had a clear identity. They didn't need to redefine themselves. God said, I am going to dwell with you. I will be your God. You will be my people. That was clear. Their identity was defined by whose they were rather than who they were. So when they request an earthly king, it was a rejection of God and the identity that they found in, in him. It's true. Samuel was set, set up his corrupt sons to be judges. And the people rightfully say, this isn't good. That was right. But what was not right was the other driving desire behind their demand for a king. They looked at the other nations, they, how they were organized and how they were ruled. And they said, that's what we want. We want to be like them. That will give us the security that we want. That'll give us the clout we want. That'll give us the, the reputation that we want. We want a monarch. We want a king just like them. And Israel grew weary of relating to God, a God that they could not see. God had chosen them. He was controlling all things. He brought them to a season of peace through Samuel. But they said, we are tired of being different. They said, I know that we're supposed to be a light to the other nations, but we'd rather be like the other nations. They believed they'd be more free without God, and so do we so much of the time. But it just doesn't work that way. It blows up in our face. And if we're not in denial about it, we're just totally crushed by it. You know, what's interesting is that while the Israelites wrestled with their identity here, they, they still understood that they needed a king. They did not say, you know what, we can be completely autonomous and rule over ourselves. We don't need a, a judge. We don't need a king. They didn't say that because they knew they need a king because they understand the human heart better than we do. As modern people, we say to ourselves, you know what, I reject any outside authority that challenges my will. I will be free to do and be whoever I want, but the human heart doesn't work that way. The human heart is always looking for a king. The human heart is always looking for a center. The human heart is always looking for something upon which to build a life, looking for something that will give them identity, looking for some, something that will make them feel like their life has meaning. Everybody looks for that. And the question is, what is it going to be? Remember in verse 6, God said, they have rejected me. So what happens when you establish an identity on anything other than the true and rightful king? What happens? Who has the sovereignty and the power and the love to bring peace, a lasting peace into your life? What happens if we have a different center? 1 Samuel 8 tells us. It's the middle section we didn't read. <clears throat> Listen to it. Listen to what happens. Listen to this warning. Listen to how this is about to blow up in their face. Verse 10. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. And he said, this will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take. He will take your sons and appoint them to be his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots and he will appoint 
for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and, and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take a tenth of your grain and your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and, and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And in that day you will cry out because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. So God says to Samuel, you need to warn them. You need to warn them that this is going to blow up on their face. You need to warn them about what's going to happen. You need to give them a picture of what to expect, what it will look like to have the king they think that they want. And so Samuel does. And what do the people say? They say, we want it anyway. The new king will take and take and take. He will demand everything. He will demand all of them. And you know what most of us think? You know what? I won't be a casualty like those other people who put other things at the center of their life. I can handle it. I'll be good. I'll be okay. And you know what? It begins casually, but then the fallout moves into the most personal areas of our hearts and lives. It affects your family. It affects your wallet. It affects your time. It, it, it affects your, your energy. It, it, it affects your whole perspective on life. It affects everything. And you know what? In this text, we'd assume that the people would cry out because of the oppression of an enemy. But it says the people would cry out because this new king who they wanted is oppressing them. One author wrote, whether your personal center is career, relationships, money, academic achievement, or sex, if, any, if an individual lives for anything besides uh, Jesus, then that functional God will abuse, crush, and tyrannize your heart. And it can even be good things, but we make them the ultimate thing. In other words, he says, that functional God will take and take and take until you are left weary and wounded crying out, wondering, how did I get so lost by something that made such big promises? We all believe, whether consciously or subconsciously, sometimes we're not even aware of, of how our heart drifts, but deep down, all of us, there's a part of us anyway, that believe that we will be more free without God, who wants us to be more free than we can ever imagine. So God gives the people what they ask for. He gives them this king they thought they wanted. And you know, I have, I have learned how sometimes God lets us have what we think we need to be free without force or coercion or manipulation. He tells us what is truly best for us, but then we have our own ideas and it doesn't go so well and it ends up taking and taking and taking. You know what Jesus takes from us? John the Baptist tells us. He says, behold, when he sees Jesus, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 
This was a Christmas announcement that the true king who was promised back in Genesis 3 after the fall has finally arrived to set his people free. On the cross, Jesus paid for our sin to give us a new identity and the freedom we long for. Now, our very own Charity Edwards said it this way. You had no idea I was going to quote you, did you? <laughs> or, or have your picture up there. In pain for our sins, Jesus took away our identity of sinner. And because of Jesus' death on the cross, when God looks at us, he now sees Jesus perfect, beautiful, amazing, completely wonderful Jesus. We have a new identity in Jesus. And Jesus reconciles us to God. This is the king that we need. This is the king that we and all of creation has been longing for, whether we're conscious of that or not. This is the king God promised all the way back in Genesis 3. This is why during the Christmas season we sing, Hark the herald angels sing, Glory glory to the newborn king. Peace on earth and mercy mild. God and sinners reconciled. God is making good on his promise. So why in the world trust Jesus with control over your life? Why, do you trust, why should you trust Jesus to be your king? You know, one way or the other, you will have a king. The question is, who will it be? And why not trust Jesus who made you and who redeemed you and who restricted his own personal freedom and died for you so that you can have freedom in life? The God who models power by becoming a servant. He is the only king who will not tyrannize you. He is the only king that will serve you and love you and lead you to freedom. So trust him. We were designed to have King Jesus at the center of our lives. And my question is this. What would it look like if we took that more seriously than ever before as individuals and collectively as a church to have King Jesus at the center of our lives? What would it look like if, if what would your life look like if he truly were central in your life, central in your family, central in your career? What would our church look like if we all embraced with greater conviction than ever before that we are loyal to King Jesus because of who he is and and what he's done for us? What would it look like if that, that loyalty and that love began to spread throughout our community? What would our city look like? This leads to the last part. God gives us a clear calling. When King Jesus becomes your source of identity, you are invited to live that identity out. Now, in the New Testament, look how Peter describes you. This is you. He's talking about you. If you're wondering who you are, you are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. 
once you were not a people. In other words, once you had no clarity on, on your identity. But now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. What would, what would your life look like if you came to grips with your identity in Christ as described here in 1 Peter? If Jesus is your Savior, if, if you have trusted Jesus as, as the King who lived for you and died for you, if you are in a relationship with him, the Bible teaches us that you are now royalty too. He says you are a royal priesthood. Who you are determines what you do. Our world gets that totally backwards. What you do determines who you are. And if you can't do what you've always done, then you don't know who you are anymore. But who you are determines what you do. And Peter describes it for us. You are a royal priesthood. And what do priests do historically? Priests intercede between humankind and God. A priest stands in the gap between earth and heaven. This is your calling as an individual, but more important, I think, collectively as a church. And you're a part of that. You're called to be a part of that. That is who you are. When you put the God of all creation into the center of your life, you get to mediate between those he put in your life and God to show them what it looks like to have God as king. Whether they know it or not, they are, the people in your life, whether they know it or not, they are dying to see what a life looks like with King Jesus at the center. To see what true freedom looks like. One commentator said, the gospel creates a kingdom community, a counterculture the church in which we are royal priests showing the world what the future kingdom will look like. We model how all of life, business practices, race relations, family life, art and culture are healed and rewoven by the king. This is your calling because this is who you are. That's why you are here. That is why God made you. He made you so that you could live a distinct Countercultural, strange life with God at the center of it all. So people will say, you know what? I'm so tired. I'm beat down. I've given my heart to these other rulers in my life, these other things, and it has had me in, in such bondage. I thought it would give me freedom, but I am crushed constantly, and I, am feel, I feel lifeless. But I've noticed something about you. No matter what happens in your life, you have joy. No matter what happens in your life, you have peace. Not that, you know, you're just skipping around with a fake smile on it, but you, you, you are still inclined to worship Jesus and filled with hope that this is not all there is, that there is a king who's going to return and make all things right. What is this freedom that you have because I want it? God's created you to live that kind of life. <laughs> it blows my mind. We need each other to... We need to remind each other of this constantly. This is our purpose. You know, it's been said that one of the strongest arguments against Christianity um, is the church. 
when they're not really looking to Jesus to be the center of their life, when they're looking for status or power or try to feel better about themselves by looking down on other people. The other perspective is that it, church has the potential to be the greatest argument for Christianity aside from the scriptures, aside from the Holy Spirit. Nothing happens without that. And yet, God has called us to live our, out our identity to reveal who he is. You know, God didn't just give his church a mission. He's given his mission a, a church to live it out. You are the mission. People want to know if Christianity is real. They want to see if people are living out their faith in a genuine way. They want to see what it looks like when people redefine their entire life, not just their you know, compartmentalized spiritual life, but their entire life by the gospel looking to Jesus as their king. Nothing is more beautiful than people long for that kind of community. We have the opportunity to show people once I had no identity, once I was not part of God's people, but I have been found, and now I'm his son, or now I'm his daughter. And then you have the freedom to live out that identity. I'll conclude with this quote by the scholar Richard Bachram. He says this. Belief in God seems to many incompatible with human autonomy. All too often in church history, God has been misrepresented as suppressing rather than promoting freedom. He has been the heavenly despot who is the model and sanction for oppressive regimes on earth. It is clear that this is not the biblical God. His lordship liberates from all human lordship. This is because the divine master himself fulfills his lordship, not in oppressive domination, but in the service of a slave. To the extent that you believe this, to the extent that this is true to you, and to the extent it brings conviction in your heart and in your life that he lived for us, you will live for him and you will live for others. To the extent that we see this truth and believe it, that he gave up his life for us, we will give up our lives for him and for others. And there will be, we will and we will continually sing uh, words like, Hail the heaven-born Prince of Peace. Hail the Son of Righteousness. Light and life to all he brings, risen with healing in his wings. This is what advances God's kingdom. Jesus is the king we need, and the king that deep down we're all really looking for. Fix your eyes on King Jesus and follow him. Amen? Would you bow your heads with me?